All right, well, let's begin by leaving, picking up where we left off last week. If you remember, Jesus was partaking of his last Passover meal. The Passover meal was a huge celebration, a huge feast. Hundreds of thousands of Jews would travel back to Jerusalem in order to participate in the Passover feast. And I want to pick up on something we, he said last week, which really sets the tone for all that we're studying today. In verse 35, the previous text from what we're studying today, it said, Luke says, and he said to them, referring to Jesus, when I sent you out with no money bag and knapsack or sandals before, did you lack anything? And the answer was no, they said nothing. And he said to them, but now, but now, everything's different. But now let the one who has a money bag take it. I sent you out without a money bag before, and and everything was fine. You had no problems. But now I'm telling you, take your money, take your wallet with you. Likewise, take your suitcase, your knapsack with your clothes, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you, the scripture must be fulfilled in me. What scripture? Quote, and he was numbered with the transgressors, end quote. For what is written about me, Jesus says, has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, enough. Let's pause there. What we see here, I want to focus in on two words that Jesus says, but now. He says to them, now, remember back in the day when I sent you out and said, don't take your wallets, don't take your suitcase, just go and you're going to be fine. And, and, and they said, yeah, I remember. And, and he said, and, and you didn't like anything. He says, not no more. It, but now things are about to get different. Things are about to be difficult for you as disciples is what he's saying. He's saying, in the past, I spared you of the suffering. In the past, I protected you from the difficult days. The temperature, the climate was different. But now things are about to be different. It is about to get ugly. Why? What's what's changing? Jesus is saying things have been a certain way, but I'm telling you, after the Last Supper, he goes out to the garden, and it's about to get ugly. Why are things about to get ugly? Why are things changing? Why the but? Why but now you better get ready? Now, I do want to be clear about something in that text. It's very hard for us to see it in the English. Jesus actually did not want them to grab swords. And they're like, I mean, it sounds like he did, in our, especially in our translation. But we know later, in a few verses later, when, when they actually pull out the sword and cut the ear off, he's like, no, I, I, it's over. We're not doing that. And he heals the guy's ear. When he says it's enough, he's saying it's enough of that nonsense. And we'll see a few places in the text, if you're reading it all in one sitting, that he, he clearly does not intend for them to literally go pick up swords. Like, you got two swords? Okay, that's enough. We'll take the whole Roman army with two swords. That's not what he was saying. He's saying it's enough of that nonsense. I don't want you to literally bear arms. And, and he said, I'm just trying to prepare you. It is time to be prepared because it's about to get difficult. Why is it about to get difficult, he says? Because the scriptures must be fulfilled. 
And then he quotes Isaiah 53, verse 12. He was numbered with the transgressors. In other words, everything that's about to happen was prophesied in scriptures. Everything was, that was about, that it's about to happen in Jesus' time reference that what's about to go down was ordained by God. As we ask the question, who killed Jesus? We start to see the very beginning of the crucifixion of Jesus, the narratives that starts the story. He says, everything that's about to happen, God said in scriptures, this must happen. So get ready, it's about to happen. And he quotes what? He was numbered with the transgressors, which is Isaiah 53. So when he says the scriptures must be fulfilled, what scriptures must be fulfilled? Well, the totality of the Old Testament scriptures was pointing to the need for the Messiah, a suffering servant in particular, is in Isaiah 53. So we're going to look at Isaiah 53, 52, 51 in that order, or 53, then 51, 52, building up to 53, because that's where Jesus is when he's talking to them. And when they knew their Old Testament and he speaks a text... He quotes a text, their frame of reference would immediately go to that text. And so that's what we need to do when we hear him say he was numbered with the transgressors. There going Isaiah 53. So to understand what Jesus is talking about, we're going to look at Isaiah 53, 51, and 52. And what we're going to see is how amazing this text is, this, this portrayal, this prophecy, generations before Jesus' day is in detail describing what exactly what happens to Jesus. Now, all of this section of Isaiah, God is prophesying to his people who are living in exile. That's the context. Israel, just to kind of help you remember where we are, God delivered his people out of Egypt. Passover feast was part of that deliver, deliverance. He passed the Passover All who trusted the blood of the Lamb were spared of the death of the firstborn. They were saved and made into a a nation of people living in the promised land. They sin, they sin, they sin, they sin, they disobey, they rebel, they ignore, they worship false gods, they turn their back on God. He sends warning after warning after warning, turn back, stop doing it, stop doing it. Consequences are going to be terrible, stop doing it. They don't stop doing it. And he says, fine, I've got to turn your hearts. And so they are exiled by Babylon. God sends Babylon to exile them out of this beautiful promised land that God provided them. But God is speaking to them in their exile where they are desperate and at the end of their rope and life is at the bottom of the barrel and it feels hopeless. And God, instead of saying, you brought this on yourself, I'm done with you. He prophesies to them, I am going to save you as a people. Why why would he do that? I want to think about that for a minute. Why would he save them as a people? They don't deserve it. There's nothing in the story that says, well, they were mostly good and God waited. No, they were terrible because he's gracious, because it's his character. It's who he is. And that's his love for them because he is love. He is amazingly gracious. And so in Isaiah 53, we see an incredible prophecy of the details about how God is going to save his people 
And it says this. Listen to verse 4 of Isaiah 53. Go back this, this afternoon and after you've taken your nap and you wake up. Read Isaiah 53 and just be blown away by the detailed description of the servant who is going to save Israel, God's people. Verse 4, surely he, referring to the servant, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. That's the gospel. That's what was prophesied by Isaiah, God speaking through his spokesman, saying all of these things. I will save my people And he describes it this way. Jesus suffered for us. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He did this. God did this to Jesus because of your sin. God did this to Jesus because of my sin. Only the death of Jesus can bring us the peace, can bring us the healing. But notice in verse 4 what he said. That Jesus was smitten by, not the Romans, not the Jews, not Judas. Verse 4, Jesus was smitten by God. And then we skip down to verse 10 to back it up. That Jesus was smitten by God. Verse 10 in Isaiah 53, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Who killed Jesus? It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see And be satisfied. God will be satisfied at the crucifixion of Jesus. That's a key phrase that God will be satisfied. What in the world does that mean? We'll look at that in a minute. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Jesus, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Why? Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered. There's the quote. And was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession. For the transgressors. So we need to understand ultimately, this was all God's will. God is the sovereign ruler over his creation, and God decided 
to crush his own son, to put him to grief, it says, in order to make an offering for your guilt and my guilt. That's what God said. In verse 11, so that God would see and be what? Satisfied. Remember that word, that God would be satisfied. Satisfied by his, the death of his son. But I always like to remind us, when we talk about his son, it gets a little warped in our head, like, what kind of sick person sends their son? The son is God himself. The son is God took flesh upon himself in order to bear your sin upon himself in order to be named among the transgressors, to be treated as the transgressor, to be crucified, to be pierced, so that he himself could be satisfied that your guilt has been paid for. It was God's will. And therefore, we see in Isaiah, Jesus did it. God did it through Jesus, second person of the Trinity. Jesus took, God took on flesh. He emptied himself, took on flesh. In order to do all that, verse 12, Jesus voluntarily, they're not forcing him. The whole account needs to be read with all of this that Luke tells us up front. Jesus makes this clear. Before all the trials and all of that, he wasn't being dragged against his will. Jesus voluntarily poured out his soul to death. He was voluntarily numbered with the transgressors. He just quotes it in the garden with his disciples before everything goes down. He says, this has to be done. I'm doing this to fulfill the scriptures because the scriptures told you this is how it's going to go down. This is the only way to satisfy God's wrath. He bore the sin of many and he makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the only way for God to be satisfied. They didn't take it from him. He voluntarily did this. So what exactly does it mean for God to be satisfied? Look at verse 9 in our Luke text. 22 verse 39 helps us to understand. That's really what the rest of this time together is trying to understand. Verse 39, and he came out. And he went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. It's leading this, the Last Supper, leading, leaving the uh, Passover Supper, the last one he would share with them. He comes out to the Mount of Olives. The disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew about a stone throws away. And he knelt down and he prayed. What did he pray? Father. If you are willing, remove this what from me? Say it out loud with me. Remove this cup from me. Lord, if there's any way, don't make me drink this cup. If there's any other way for you to be satisfied, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, Not my will, but yours be done. What is 
the cup. Remove this cup from me. Where should we go to understand the cup? Well, he's been quoting Isaiah 53. We should go to Isaiah 53 and read the context. And in the context, we find Isaiah 51 and in 52. Jesus is referring to his suffering and his death on the cross as drinking a cup. And we start to understand what the cup is in verse 17, for example. Again, go home and read Isaiah 51, 52, and 53. And then go read Luke in this text about Jesus' death. God is speaking about their exile. And he said, this whole idea of Babylon coming in and ripping you out of your, your homeland, destroying the temple and doing terrible things and pulling you out and you're living in exile. What is that? He says, you have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. The exile, the punishment due their sin, their continual rebellion, was the cup of God's wrath against them that was due their sin. They continually sinned. They finally got what they deserved. And God calls it what that was. It was the cup of my wrath. That was the cup of God's wrath. So let's grapple with God's wrath for a minute. Part of us resists this idea that God would have wrath. Well, let me first, by doing a kind of a philosophical or ontological statement here. If you resist this idea that God is wrath, where does that come from? It comes from a sense of justice. How could that be just, that God would have wrath? Where does a sense of justice come from? It comes from a just God. So a just God is inherently built into our sense of how can that be right and fair? So that in itself is argument for the fact that God is just and would have wrath against sin. Also, a little analogy. We have less a problem with with a just judge having wrath when we think in terms of a judge at the courts. If you have had someone sin against you or commit a crime against you, you don't think it's right and good for a judge to ignore it. You think it's right and good for a judge to execute justice and, and carry out the right punishment, right? That's a sense of justice. Well, that all comes from the fact that God is a just God. He is holy and perfect and good, and it is right for God to punish sin. It is right and good for a holy God to punish sin. Wrath is the natural response of holiness to evil. And it's right and it's good. It's not right and good for God to just ignore it. When when you are forgiven of your sins because you've trusted in Jesus, it's not that Jesus that God just said Okay, I'm going to turn a blind eye to your sin and let you off the hook like some crooked, bought-off judge does. That's not what's going on in the gospel. So what is going on? How can, you, how can I walk out of here scot-free, declared holy and righteous and sinless, and the Bible call me a saint when I know my wicked heart, I know my past, and you're all in there with me? How can we get away with it? 
Is it because God was bought off by our good behavior? Absolutely not. Is it because God was bought off with our religion? No, that's not a good gospel. It's because God's wrath was satisfied. Someone took our punishment. The punishment was given. The just judge punished our sin. How? Isaiah 51, 22. Thus says your Lord, the Lord your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. You shall drink it no more. God took it. We should be staggering and drunken with the cup of God's wrath. But God says, behold, I'll take it for you. So while they're in exile, God prophesied his plan to save his people, the same people who don't really even deserve to be saved. He promised to save them by sending his servant to take the wrath. And then Isaiah 53 describes the servant, the drink it no more, and it's called salvation. Isaiah 52.10, the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of of all the nations and all the, the, of the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Are you saved? What are you saved from? We use this language, but do we really think about it? What are we saved from? What does Jesus save us from? He saves us from the wrath of God. If you don't believe there's wrath, then you don't really believe there's much benefit in salvation. But God, in his holiness, must, and in his justice, must pour wrath out against sin, rebellion, treason. And he does so. And he promised he would do so by his servant, his son, by himself, taking upon flesh and being numbered with the transgressors, being counted as a sinner. He'd bear our iniquities upon himself. What did Jesus say when he took his last, last breath? In John's gospel, he says it for us. He says, and as he was taking his last breath, what did he say? It is what? Finished. What's finished? There's no wrath left. Jesus drank it all. Every last drop of it. It is finished. So back to Jesus in the garden. In our Luke passage, Jesus, who is God in flesh, knew what he was facing, knew that he was about to have to drink the very wrath of God. He says... This is going to be terrible. Is there any other way that I don't have to drink this cup? But then he resigned in his heart, but not my will, but thine. Not my will, but yours be done, Lord. 
And who was right there helping him? Who killed Jesus? Who was right there helping him? We continue to read in Luke 22, verse 43. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. Yes, you can do this. You can go to the cross. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood. You don't think there's the wrath of God? Jesus believed it. Jesus knew it. And he's in anguish. Because he knows it. I'm about to drink the wrath of God upon myself. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping because of sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. That's what you do when someone's drinking the wrath for you. You say, oh Lord, help me not enter into temptation. No one is taking Jesus' life. He is total control of this scene. He's voluntarily giving his life to drink up the full wrath of God for us, for those who will trust in him, to satisfy a just, holy God. And so having resigned himself to the will of God to drink the cup, Judah starts the ball rolling. Here we go, verse 47. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd. The man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. And he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? You think he doesn't know what's going on? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them struck the servant, the high priest, and cut off his right ear. Jesus said, no more of this, no more. He touched his ear and he healed them. And Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him. Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you didn't lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. He's in total control. Judas, the Jewish rulers... The power of darkness. Yeah, they were all guilty. Their sin hung Jesus on the cross. But they were not forcing Jesus to do anything against his will. Jesus is in control. Jesus is going to the cross to intentionally, purposefully drink the wrath of God and satisfy the wrath of God against sin. So what about those who reject Jesus? So if you've been told you're going to drink a cup of poison and Jesus says, I'll take it for you. And you say, no, I'm good. Well, we know what happens in Revelation, the end of your story, the end of the Bible, Revelation 14, 10, John writes the book of Revelation. John mentions the cup of God's wrath also. He's speaking about the final day of judgment when Jesus comes back to finally establish his eternal kingdom and he deals with his enemies And he says about those who refuse to let Jesus drink the cup of wrath for them. Those who say, no, I'm good, let me drink it. He says in verse 10 of Revelation 14 that they will drink the wine of God's wrath. Poured full strength into the cup of his anger and he will be tormented with suffer. With, with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the lamb who was slain. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. It's 
It's an eternal decision. It's done. And they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image. And whoever receives the mark of its name. In verse 12, here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who will keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. What what a tragedy. Would anyone choose to drink their own poison? Why? To drink the cup of God's wrath against them when Jesus has offered to drink it for them. And for those who have trusted in Christ and said, thank you for drinking the wrath for me, we are like the disciples. We need to be praying, Lord, keep me from temptation. Let me obey you. Let me endure in faithfulness. Let me live for you, for you have taken my wrath. So who killed Jesus? Well, it's true to say that my sins killed Jesus. Your sins killed Jesus. Judas, the Jews, the Romans, a lot of sinful, the devil, a lot of sinful people hung Jesus on the cross. But ultimately, God killed Jesus. He chose to do that. He chose to take upon the sins of of his people to satisfy. It's like that judge said, no, you're guilty. You've got to be punished by, by poisoning. There's the cup. And then the judge steps out, takes the cup, and drinks it. That's the gospel. And at that moment you say, I owe him my life. Someone had to drink the cup. Someone had to be punished. God's wrath, his holiness had to be satisfied. He couldn't just turn a blind eye and be some corrupt judge. He had to deal with our sin. And he took it and dealt with it upon himself in the form of Jesus. Let Jesus take your wrath today. Father, we ask for your help. Help us in two ways. Those of us who have never trusted Jesus. Help us to see what Jesus did as the greatest, most gracious, most merciful gift ever in the history of humanity. He drank the wrath of God and satisfied God's justice for those who will trust in him. Give everyone faith this morning. Whoever's here and is not trusting in Jesus, give them faith to trust in Jesus right now. Say, I trust you, Jesus. Thank you for taking the wrath of God that I deserved. And if you are trusting Jesus, please let someone know, let your friends know, let me know, let someone know and say, hey, I'm new to this and I want to understand what all. Be a reminder like the disciples and Jesus said to them, hey, you need to spend some time praying that you not be tempted, that you not, that you not turn away from Jesus. Let this be a reminder that our life, we owe Jesus our life, not out of guilt or gratitude, but out, he is so incredibly awesome, so wonderful, so loving, so kind and merciful and gracious that he would do this, that, that the only proper response would be to love, love him. 
and to live for him out of a heart of love and worship. Help us this morning to rekindle that heart, that flame of worship. For Jesus has finished drinking our wrath and he remembers our sin no more. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we stand and sing.